Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 22, Genesis chapters 22 and 23. We're going to get into Genesis chapter 22 today. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Uh, Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Yitzhak, and go to the land of Moriah. There you to offer him as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will point out to you. Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, together with Yitzhak, his son. He cut the wood for the bird offering, departed, and went toward the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes, and he saw the place in the distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go there, worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood for the bird offering, laid it on Yitzhak, his son, Then he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they both went on together. Yitzhak spoke to Avraham, his father. He said, My father. And he answered, Here I am, my son. He said, I, I see the wood and the fire, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Avraham replied, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And they both went on together. They came to the place God had told him about, and Abraham built the altar there, set the wood in order, bound Yitzhak, his son, and laid him on the altar on the wood. Then Abraham put out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of Adonai called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, and he answered, Here I am. And he said, Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him, for now I know that you are a man who fears God. Because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Avraham raised his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the bushes by its horns. Avraham went and took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering in place of his son. Avraham called the place Adonai Yira. All right, Adonai will see to it. And it is said to this day on the mountain Adonai is seen. The angel of Adonai came to Abraham a second time out of heaven. He said, I have sworn by myself, says Adonai, that because you have done this, because you haven't withheld your son, your only son, I will most certainly bless you. I will most certainly increase your descendants to as many as there are stars in the sky or grains of sand on the seashore. Your descendants will possess the cities of their enemies. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you obeyed my order. So Abraham returned to his young men and they got up and went together to Beersheba and Abraham settled in Beersheba. Afterwards, Abraham was told, Milcah too has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uts, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kamuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Yidlaf, and Betuel. Betuel fathered Rivka. These eight Milcah bore 
to Nahor, Avraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Reumah, bore children also. Tevach, Gaham, Dachash, and Maacha. Well, after all these things, which is the first words, chapter 22, is basically the Hebrew, the biblical Hebrew way of saying, eventually. I mean, it describes an undefined period of time having passed, but usually it's a substantial amount of time. Now, in some places in the Bible, this time is so long and circumstances and conditions have evolved sufficiently that one could say one era has ended and another era has begun. So likely, at least a score of years have passed since Abraham's dealing with Abimelech, recorded at the end of the previous chapter. Now this chapter, Genesis 22, consists of only 24 verses. Okay? And, and it's as though we've climbed a huge mountain, starting at its widespread base and working our way on up towards the peak at times taking a little detour, then pausing, camping out, reflecting on how far we've come. And now finally, we have reached the peak. Yet, you know, when you get to the top, what can you say? What, how much is there to say about it? I mean, as with most things in life, you know, it's not the arrival it's the journey that carries with it so much historic significance. Therefore, this story recounted to us in Genesis 22 of the arrival is to the point and it has told with an economy of words. Now, please, please note this very unique style of biblical writing. The most time spent for explanation and eloquence is set in setting the stage for the eventual seminal event. But the event it has all pointed to is usually told with little emotion or detail. I mean, this is so non-typical of human writing and prose for that era, or any other era for that matter, when dealing with those earth-shattering events that have shaped human civilization. I mean, the great writings of the past, taken from 5,000-year-old Egyptian tombs of royalty, right, and from the vast cuneiform records of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and from the epic sagas of the Persians and the Greeks and the Roman-era writings that are often required reading in college, do exactly the opposite. Okay? Those stories spend all their time aggrandizing and hallowing the kings and military leaders and telling this elaborate and exaggerated tale of the day of great victory or the culmination of a grand vision. Yet biblically, for instance, look at all the time that is spent leading up to the flood, explaining why mankind had turned on God. But what few and precious words about the flood itself are recorded. I mean, no long diatribe for effect 
about people screaming for their lives, or the earth awash in bloated corpses, all drowning victims, nor of Noah and his family gloating over their survival and all the others' demise, nor even of Yahweh celebrating the death of all the wicked. And here, with Abraham, we have had chapter after chapter explaining the life and purpose of Abraham and the trials of his journey and his weaknesses revealed along with his strengths, the bad times given equal times with the good, his spiritual defeats alongside with his spiritual victories. And then in Genesis 22, we have just a couple of paragraphs quietly, almost introvertedly, telling us of this crowning achievement. I mean, this event of Genesis 22 is the peak of Abraham's life. It is in some ways the purpose for which everything before it was but preparation. This was also a day which, though so magnificently important in itself, was really but a shadow of things to come. It was a type. Now, so important is this event to Judaism that the story has been given a title. It's called the Akedah. The Akedah. Akedah means to bind, or it means the binding. And of course it refers to the binding of Isaac as he was placed on the altar of burnt offering. Now, it should be noticed that this chapter, chapter 22, is fully entwined, uh, intertwined with the previous one. Okay? In chapter 21, we saw Abraham being instructed to give up and send away his, the son he loved and had put all of his hope in, Ishmael. What seemed to Abraham as his firstborn son, the heir to the promise, was suddenly to be sent away to some uncertain future. Then, as Ishmael is out in the desert and near death, Yahweh or his angel calls out from heaven and rescues the young man. A water well miraculously appears and Ishmael is saved. In this chapter, Abraham is now called on to give up his remaining son, Isaac. The son God considers to be Abraham's firstborn, and by now, so does Abraham. The son who Yahweh says specifically is the promised son. This son is to be removed from Abraham by his own hand. Now, moments before Isaac's death, Yahweh or his angel calls out from heaven and rescues the young man. A, man, a ram with its horns caught in the thicket miraculously appears and Isaac is saved. So you see the parallel that runs here. Now, we're told in verse 1, that God was putting Abraham to the test. Now, you know, this is a piece of information that we have that Abraham didn't. Okay, I mean, and this is important because the reason for telling us in the initial sentence that this is a test, all right, is so as we read about it, we don't fret and wonder if in some way Yahweh actually sanctions human sacrifice on some level. In other words, we know from the beginning that Isaac's going to be fine. He's going to survive. 
Well, apparently, at least was apparent to the ancient sages and scholars, God's instructions to Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering came at night during a dream or a vision. Now, because we're told that early the next morning, after receiving this devastating command during the night, Abraham arose and set about to obey. Now, the Hebrew word used here for burnt offering is olah, O-L-A-H, olah. And when we get to Leviticus, we're going to hear that word a lot. Okay. There were five primary kinds of sacrificial burnt offerings, and the olah is just one of them, although it is the chief of them all. For now, just know that every one of the five kinds of sacrificial offerings that you'll read about in Leviticus were burned up. Every one of them was a kind of burnt offering. So the title olah doesn't just mean any kind of offering that's burned up in a fire. Rather, olah, the word that's used here in the Hebrew, refers to a specific kind of burnt offering with a very specific meaning. And, and there are two elements which separate each of these five types of sacrifices from each other. First, what the sacrificial offerings that were to be burned up consisted of. And second, the divine purpose and function of that particular sacrificial offering and associated ritual. Now let's also not pass up the opportunity to discuss the place where Abraham was directed to take Isaac for this ceremonial sacrifice. He was told to go to the land of Moriah, to a hilltop that God himself would point out once he got near. Therefore, out of all this that we're reading here today came the traditions of Mount Moriah. Now today, it's a scholarly given all right, that Mount Moriah is in Jerusalem. The question most traditional scholars argue over has a very sharp dividing line in it, depending on whether one is a Hebrew or one is a Gentile Christian. Okay. Jews, Hebrews, believe that Mount Moriah is where the temple used to be and will again someday exist. Right. The place that today is called the Temple Mount and where that huge golden dome um, that dominates the skyline, that is what the Jews refer to as Mount Moriah. Most Gentile Christian scholars, however, will tell you that Mount Moriah is the Mount of Crucifixion. It's the place where Yeshua was executed by the Romans. And generally speaking, there are two rival locations in Jerusalem as to where that momentous event supposedly occurred. Uh, neither, of course, is in the Temple Mount area. That said, it needs to be understood that the Temple Mount does not cover the whole of Mount Moriah. I have a chart up here for you to take a look at, see if you can kind of get a picture here. See this line running here? I'm trying to give you a, a side view of a hill. Here's the summit, here's the hill running down. City of David down the hill a little bit. Mount Moriah, the summit up here. This is what we have here. 
City of David here, City of David here. So we've got an upsloping hill, uphill. Here's Mount Moriah up here. Here's the Temple Mount. Okay. Um, you know, Mount Moriah was not even part of the original Jerusalem that was downsloped from it called the City of David. Rather, the City of David was located on a way down the hill, all right, Mount Moriah being the uppermost part, and in between is an area that's now called the Ophel. Those of you that'll go, that are going, all right, you're going to find out this is not a very big area. It's not very far apart. Now, <clears throat> one of the locations chosen as the crucifixion site, technically, probably, was part of Mount Moriah, whereas the other absolutely is not. Okay. Now we're going to not going to get into exactly where Yeshua was executed, but I will tell you that by well-documented Jewish law, current at that time, and some very strong hints that Paul gave to us, I really don't think that either of the traditional locations of the crucifixion is correct. I don't think it can be. Now, at the time Abraham was given instructions to journey to Moriah, he and his family were, li were living in Beersheba. Okay, right down here you see the Dead Sea. See Beersheba out here uh, to, to the uh, west of the more southern end of the Dead Sea. It was about 50 miles south-southwest of uh, Jerusalem. This is the distance we're talking about here. So it was a pretty good journey that, that lie ahead of them. And I'm sure it gave Abraham lots of time to think along that journey and a lot of time to back out of the agonizing purpose of that trip. But he didn't do it. You know, we're given a couple of intriguing bits of information in verse 3. It says, first, that Abraham took two servants with him. And second, that they chopped wood for the fire that would be necessary on the altar, and they took it along with them on their journey. Now, last week, I gave you several parallels between Isaac and Yeshua. Now, some commentators say that the action of Abraham taking two servants with him coincides with the two criminals hanging on their respective crosses next to Jesus. But other than the number two, I'm afraid the similarities in there, unless you inject a, a, a pretty, pretty uh, big amount of allegory. All right, the fact is that a person of Abraham's stature would never have traveled without servants. Uh, and two was the recognized minimum traditional number of accompanying servants in his day. So the entourage of two signified that Abraham was an important person. However, in verse 6, we're told that upon reaching Mount Moriah, Abraham put the wood for the altar fire on the back of Isaac. The very wood that would become the means of his death and burning up and that he would have to haul it up the hill to the place of the altar. This is a perfect parallel to Yeshua being required to bear upon his own back the wooden cross that would become the means of his death, his sacrificial death.
Now this action of Abraham bringing the wood along with him from Beersheba is also quite interesting because there's no discernible reason why they needed to transport heavy wood with them all that 50 miles. I mean, in fact, they were starting their journey from a place where wood was sparse. Right? And they were going to a place where it was relatively plentiful. There was no shortage of heavy shrubs and small trees in the mountains surrounding Jerusalem. Now we're told that this was a three-day journey, which is about right for that 50-mile distance they would have traveled. Now when they arrived, it says that Abraham told the servants that they could not go with he and Isaac up to the altar, but that they would both return shortly. Hmm. Was Abraham telling a little white lie? I mean, was he trying not to panic Isaac or, or the servants with saying what light ahead, what appeared to lie ahead rather, the, uh, the human sacrifice of Isaac? I think in some ways this prefigures Christ telling his servants, the disciples, that he was leaving and where he was going no one could follow yet but that he was going to return. You could count on it. All right? and of course, that's known to us as the second coming. Now, I also don't want, to, want us to miss this amazing symbolism of the Father and the Son going to the sacrificial altar together. Obviously, both were necessary. The father couldn't perform a sacrifice without a sacrificial offering, his son. And the son couldn't be sacrificed without the impetus of the father. A few weeks ago, we looked at the essence and nature of God, which is what the doctrine of the Trinity is all about. And we saw that we could not so easily rip God into three identifiable pieces or persons, taking him apart and putting him back together at our own will. We also saw that many of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, the ones which Jesus came to fulfill, plainly say that yud heh vav heh will be pierced. All right? And yud heh vav heh will return to the Mount of Olives. Well, with the God in three pieces doctrine, Yahweh is one person and Yahshua is another. So is it Yahweh or Jesus that's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives? Okay. I say that the unity of the Godhead is so complete, we can't separate it into three pieces. Okay. But we can, of course, speak of his many attributes. All right. One of those attributes being salvation. And the salvation attribute was to take place within the context of a yet larger attribute of God that we call the Son. Okay. What I'm getting at is that because God is one, the Father attribute and the Son attribute act together in fullest unity at all times. Yahweh hung on that cross just as surely as Yeshua did. Okay, and here we see in Abraham and Isaac, the father and the son, these two attributes arriving together at the altar of sacrifice, each with their necessary roles. 
the son attribute, Isaac, was to be the sacrifice. And the father attribute, Abraham, was to initiate and accept the sacrifice. When Yeshua died, it was the human aspect of him that died. The divine lived on. Okay. When Yeshua died, it was the son attribute who was the sacrifice. It was the father attribute that initiated and accepted that sacrifice. Well, in verse 7, what was likely a very uneasy silence was broken when Isaac finally asked the obvious. Father, where's the lamb for this sacrifice? This was no naive question from an innocent little child. The ancient Jewish writings say that Isaac was 37 years old at this time. Okay. Josephus, who lived at the time of Christ, says that Isaac was something over 25 years old at this point in the scriptures. Isaac was a fully mature man. Right. So somewhere in between the ages of 25 and 37 likely lies the reality. 30-ish is probably about the best we can do. But for sure, Isaac was no child. Okay. The idea that a grade school-aged boy who was Isaac was uh, is who Isaac was at this time it is strictly a modern Gentile Christian invention that makes for cute pictures. Okay, and the idea of a pitiful, helpless little child being forced into something from which there was no escape. Now, as we see Abraham being instructed to offer up his son Isaac as a burnt offering, a no law, a sacrifice, we can only wonder what was going on through Abraham's mind. I mean, yet this command of God to sacrifice Isaac would not have seemed strange to him. I mean, because human sacrifice to a god was part of the normal worship practices of the of the Canaanite people who surrounded him. I mean, as Isaac was being bound, it says he became silent, right? And he knew full well what was about to happen to him. He didn't fight the situation. He didn't demand his rights or an explanation. He didn't wonder out loud, why me? And of course, neither did the one that Isaac prefigured, the Messiah, offer up resistance or attempt to bypass the sacrificial death that only the <laughs> promised son could accomplish. Yet, you know, Isaac was no Messiah. The appointed time for the Messiah, the time that Yahweh alone knew because Yahweh alone had set that time hadn't come yet and as we now know that time would be about 18 centuries later Isaac was to be a lesson and a demonstration of a spiritual principle he wasn't the anointed one Isaac was just a man and therefore he could never qualify as the price God required for eternal redemption Therefore, to have Isaac die in the manner that seemed about to happen would have been human sacrifice. So Yahweh stopped it. Once the vivid picture of what the cost to God was eventually going to be. Because it was going to be God himself who would sacrifice himself for men. Well, this chapter just drips with significance and, and, and it's overwhelming 
and presenting a type of Messiah in his crucifixion, isn't it? It's amazing. I mean, we could spend two weeks here alone, but I'm going to only try to hit the high points so as to not get too bogged down. Now, as the means to kind of get to the meat of this, allow me to list the types represented in this story and then give you the parallel as it applied to Yeshua. First, Abraham is to sacrifice his only son. God sacrificed his only son. Three days after Isaac was condemned to death, he arose from the altar alive. Christ arose from the dead three days after he was condemned. Isaac was required to carry the wood up to the hilltop that would be the very device used for his own death. Christ was required to carry his own wooden cross, the instrument of his own death, up to the hilltop where he'd be fastened to it and die. Isaac wanted to know where the lamb was for the sacrifice and Abraham told him that God would provide it. God did provide the sacrificial lamb, his very own son, for the sacrifice for all mankind. We have the principle of substitution developing here. A ram, a male sheep, was provided to Abraham to replace Isaac as the, as the sacrifice. Christ, a male sacrificial lamb, was the provision who replaced our rightful place of judgment at Calvary. And the place where the altar was to, uh, where, rather where the sacrifice was to occur, was commemorated as Yahweh Yira, or as our eyes are more used to hearing it, Jehovah Jireh, meaning Yahweh provides. Yahweh provided the sacrifice because no other one would do. Okay. This sacrifice was Yeshua, God in the flesh. And all none of this is allegory. What Isaac was subjected to was a shadow, a demonstration of what was going to happen 1,800 years into the future. Now, towards the end of this ordeal, we're twice told that the angel of the Lord called out to Abraham from heaven first to stop the sacrifice and the second time to embellish these covenants previously given to Abraham now since we've already done a word study on the phrase angel of the Lord let me just point out to you that this time it's a little different Hebrew phrase than we've previously seen first though notice that this angel of the Lord calls from heaven and I wonder why this angel isn't on earth or appearing before Abraham instead of just speaking to him from heaven maybe we do have a clue for this though if we look a little closer remember the Hebrew for angel of the Lord is Malach meaning messenger Malach Adonai Adonai Lord Okay. But this time, the wording is Malach yud heh Yahweh. Yahweh being God's personal name. So this translates literally to angel of Yahweh. Now, interestingly, we see this angel of yud heh who is speaking from heaven say, I have sworn by myself. Typically when something is identified as an or the angel of the Lord, this being says that the Lord told me to say this or God told me to do that. Obviously making a definite distinction 
between God and the angel, but that's not the case here. Here, this angel of Yahweh speaks with the same authority and person as Yahweh God Almighty. That is, I say this. From my perspective, this is pretty mysterious. Even so, I see Malach Adonai speak as one who is doing God's will versus Malach Yahweh speaking of his own will. Then I have to consider the probability that we're talking about two different beings. Exactly what's the significance of all that? I'm not exactly sure, but you can bet your boots that it is significant or that God's personal name wouldn't be involved. I mean, we have to be very cautious, I think, in accepting this rather rigid doctrine that's been developed beginning with the edicts of the Council of Nicaea in the early 4th century AD concerning how the God of the universe manifests himself. I mean, doctrines were created then and continue to be created now that are nowhere present in scripture or tradition or even in practice up to that point. Doctrines that the first 200 years of the early church knew nothing of. I mean, I've commented on numerous occasions that for us to intellectually force all possible dimensions of God or even just the ones alluded to in Holy Scripture into three separate boxes is kind of a dangerous undertaking. Okay. It compels us to limit he who is without limits. Okay. I mean, who or what is the messenger of Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh that twice shows up in conjunction with this climactic story of Abraham and Isaac and speaks of Yahweh in the first person? Of that, I don't think we can know. All right. But perhaps this is our opportunity to once again acknowledge that it is simply not possible for mankind to know God's mind or imagine all of who he is. Perhaps we need to just grow more comfortable in knowing that God is not a human being nor a superhuman being. Okay? He is a whole other being. And our duty in some cases is simply to accept that which we cannot experience or explain. I mean, is that not really the definition of faith in the first place? In any case, Abraham and Isaac return home and then we're given some genealogy concerning Abraham's brother, Nahor, who is still living, by the way, back up in Mesopotamia. Okay. The first thing that ought to strike us about this list is that 12 sons are listed for Nahor, just as Ishmael was to have 12 sons and eventually Jacob was to have 12 sons. However, unlike the 12 sons of Jacob, who will eventually form the nation of Israel, each one playing an important role, several of the sons of Nahor, we will, in, we will never again encounter their names in the Bible. Okay? We only know they even existed because of this genealogical listing here at the end of Genesis 22. Okay. Let's... Um,
let's let's move on a little bit tonight. All right. I'd like to to get in chapter 23 here tonight if we can. This is not too long. Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. These were the years of Sarah's life. Sarah died at Kiryat Arba, also known as Havron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn Sarah and weep for her. Then he got up from his dead one and said to the sons of Het, I am a foreigner living as an alien with you. Let me have a burial site with you so that I can bury my dead wife. The sons of Het answered Abraham, Listen to us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. So choose any of our tombs to bury your dead. Not one of us would refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Abraham got up and he bowed before the people of the land, the sons of Het, and he spoke with them. And he said, If it is your desire to help me bury my dead, then listen to me. Ask Ephron, the son of Zohar, to give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, the one at the end of his field. He should sell it to me in your presence at its full value. Then I will have a burial site of my own. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among the sons of Het, and he gave Abraham his answer in the presence of the sons of Het, who belonged to the ruling council of the city. No, my lord, listen to me. I'm giving you the field with its cave. I'm, I'm giving it to you. In the presence of my people, I give it to you. Abraham bowed before the people of the land and spoke to Ephron in their hearing. Please be good enough to listen to me. I will pay the price of the field, accept it from me, and I will bury my dead there. But Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A, a plot of land worth 400 shekels, what's that between me and you? Just bury your dead. Abraham got the point of what Ephron had said. So he weighed out for Ephron the amount of money he had specified in the presence of, his, of the sons of Het, 400 civil, uh, silver shekels of the weight accepted among merchants. Thus the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which is by Mamre, the field, its cave, all the trees in it and around it were deeded to Abraham as his possession in the presence of the sons of Het who belonged to the ruling council of the city. Then Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah by Mamre, also known as Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and its cave had been purchased by Abraham from the sons of Het as a burial site which would belong to him. But we just saw something very Middle Eastern go on here. Let me tell you. Just as... Um, Genesis 22 was the climax of Abraham's life and divine purpose. So chapter 23 pulls together some loose ends and it transitions us now from Abraham to Isaac. And the first loose end is to bring closure to the life of the very first Hebrew matriarch, Sarah. She was 127 years old when she died. Now Hebrew tradition is that the trauma she suffered over her only son Isaac's experience at Mount Moriah destroyed the health of this already aged woman. Now I, I think it's not too hard for you mothers here to identify with Sarah's experience. I mean imagine 
unable to have children, God finally gives you one in your old age, but now your husband informs you that God has asked for this child's life. All Sarah could do was sit and grieve as the days went by, waiting for her husband to turn to return surely without her son. Hebrew tradition also says that Abraham was 138 years old when Sarah died. Well, from a scholarly viewpoint, Sarah's death is pretty important because it provides some details of the very first death and burial of a Hebrew. Okay? And we find that Abraham and Sarah were living in Hebron when she expired. So it was natural that Abraham would want to entomb her there. And it's key to remember that as of this point in time, God's promise of a land set aside for Abraham had not come to fruition. Okay? Nor was it going to for another five or six centuries. Okay. Abraham used the land of others. He lived in a land governed by others and he didn't possess any territory at all. I mean, it's, it's ironic, isn't it? The only piece of real estate Abraham would ever be able to call his own was a cave to use as a tomb for his beloved wife, later himself and eventually his children, and even a grandchild, Jacob as well. Well, all three of the great patriarchs of the Bible are buried in Hebron. Now a territory given over to Israel's enemy, the Palestinians. And I strongly suspect that David's choice of Hebron as his first capital city when he became king of Judah had much to do with the awesome reverence associated with the burial place of the founders of the nation of Israel. Now, while the bargaining session we just read between Abraham and Ephraim seems quaint, if not downright humorous, Ephron obviously being a leader among the people called Hittites who ruled over this area, ancient records reveal that there was a very good legal reason all right, that the deal Abraham was pursuing for this cave of Machpelah as a tomb for his wife and himself took the exact course that it did. Okay. See, the issue was this. In modern terms, Abraham and his clan were resident aliens in Canaan. Okay. It was typical of that day that foreigners could not purchase land. I mean, land was everything. For a family to lose its land was a catastrophe. Okay. But for a family to sell its land to a foreigner, Abraham was a foreigner in Canaan, was an abomination. Now, it did occur from time to time, and in fact, it was legal. Right? However, how the land was acquired was very important. For instance, had Abraham accepted it as a gift that was offered to him, not only would that have been insulting to the Hittites that he would have accepted it, but it likely would have been challenged in the years to come by someone claiming that it was wrong to sell land to a resident alien in the first place. Okay, So Abraham couldn't accept Ephron's offer of the cave as a gift. Yet Abraham also had to be very careful in his bargaining for it. Because if he bought it 
at a price that didn't seem fair to later generations, that was reason enough to take the land back. Therefore, Abraham dickered around all right, until Ephron set the price before Abraham was forced to make an offer. The price, 400 shekels of silver, was high. That was a high price for that piece of land. All right, but by Abraham graciously insisting that he's happy to pay full price, he took away most legal challenges that could have led to having that land taken away from his or his descendants sometime in the future. And so that, that cave was still there for them to use. Now, burial spots were terribly important to the ancients. And I dare say burial spots still bear enormous significance even among our modern societies. I mean, they're wringing their hands big time in New Orleans right now. As all those flooded graveyards, what are they going to do? So this entire process took place before many of the town's citizens, Hittite citizens, so that they could be witnesses to the transfer of ownership of that cave from Ephron to Abraham and that it would stay in his family in perpetuity. I think we'll call it a night right there.